Big, Better, Best Books with authors, readers, and other endangered species. I'm your guide, Katerina Valentin. Come and join us. Welcome to the Big, Better, Best Books podcast. And today I have a very special guest, one of my absolute favorite, or actually two of my absolute favorite areas of literature is fantasy and science fiction. And uh, I read all ages of this. I read everything from, for, you know, teenagers up to more advanced versions of science fiction. And one of my favorite authors, L.E. Modisett Jr., and well, what would you like to, me to call you? What's the what's the best way of presenting your name? I've seen many versions. Well, that's the pen name. The official name is Leland Exton Modisett Jr., which I've never gone by. I just go by Lee. <laughs> okay, Lee. That's a very, very easy. And Lee, you are an amazingly productive author. You've written, I don't know, over 70, 80 books uh, in several different series. Is that correct? It's 76 that have either been published or in the produ production process, and I'm working on number 77. Wow. Yes. You, I looked at your, it seems like you come up with one or even sometimes two books a year. Is that correct? I have averaged two and a half books a year for the last 25 years. I have to say the last couple of years, I've only done two, but still the average is up there. But I am getting a little older, a little slower. I must that is extremely impressive. And then, so I have a few questions based on that. But one is, obviously, this is the correct profession for you. You are obviously meant to be an author if you, if you manage to write this many books a year. But how, how did you become an author? If I read about you, you've done about everything before or maybe during. You were an author. You've had all kinds of different jobs. But how did author become the thing that you became? I never planned to become a science fiction author. I originally started out as a poet. And my academic training was basically poetry and uh, then practical stuff like economics and political science because I knew poets didn't make a living at it. And I'd been writing poetry that had never gotten beyond the small literary magazines for almost 15 years. And I was in my late 20s. And uh, somebody said to me, you know, you are never going to get beyond the small literary magazines. What you write is not in vogue. And I thought, that's probably right. Uh, so I wrote a science fiction story. And um, I sent it off to Ben Bova because although I'd read science fiction since I was a kid, I'd never thought about writing it. And I'd only read the big magazines. Those are the ones I knew. And Analog sounded like a good place to send it. And not knowing any better, I sent it off. Well, Ben Bova sent it back. But it was a really, a really nice rejection letter. It basically said, this was actually a pretty good story, except for the mess you made out of page 13. It's good enough that if you can fix that, I'll look at it again. I did fix it, sent it back to him, and he bought it. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I'm a writer. No, no, doesn't work that way. <laughs> I think I wrote, and I've sort of lost count, but it's between 25 and 27 stories before I sold the second one. Maybe 17 or 18 before I sold the third one. After about six or seven years, I was selling one in five. And then I got another letter from Ben Bova, which said, and I'm not kidding you, 
don't send me any stories. I won't buy them. And after I got over, the, over that particular shock, I looked at the next paragraph, which said, it's pretty clear to me that you are a novelist trying to cram novels into short stories. Go write a novel. Then we'll talk about stories. So I decided, well, I'll try. And two years later, I finished the novel, which was originally titled The Fires of Paratime. So I look at your product because you're obviously sped up and now you're, you know, writing several books a year. And one of the things that I really love about both fantasy and actually and science fiction, for me, they're similar. It's because there's a whole world built that I can enter, that, that I can I can go in there and I can get acquainted with a new universe. And you do that so well, like in your series, you have some of your books span over thousands of years. So how do you do that? Where do you get your ideas? Do you know what's going to happen when you start? Do you have the whole world or how does it occur? Part of that is just my own, is my own mindset. <laughs> I have always been a big buff on obviously politics and history. And I have always asked myself about pretty much everything. How did we get here? whatever it may be. So when I'm writing a book, I'm not only thinking about what the pr present plot line is, but how did this society or how did this particular situation come to be? I've always got a backstory somewhat in mind. Now, I really got stretched when I wrote the first Recluse book because I wrote that book as literally a challenge. I had written science fiction for 20 years and I got involved in a panel, and I suggested unwisely to the other panelists, who all were all fantasy writers, that most fantasy writers didn't know squat about either economics or politics. Now you got to remember this was in about this was in about 1987, when back then and most of them didn't. Yeah, um, that's changed a lot, and I and I see what uh, you're saying. And yes. I'd like to think yeah. I was one of the people who pioneered that change. But in any case. I got the sort of the backstory on it. There were muttering about this damn science fiction author who couldn't write a fantasy if his life depended on it. Well, Modisset is either Old English or French Huguenot, but most of my ancestry is Irish. And if you know anything about history, you really don't tell the Irish they can't do something. <laughs> and I thought, I can too. I can write a fantasy with a logical magic system, a workable economic system, a political system that's not a ripoff of medieval or somebody else's culture. And so I wrote The Magic of Recluse. Now I had some of the backstory in mind, but I, initially I had no idea that it would turn into what it was. And when it, when it came out, it did okay. It sold modestly well in hardcover. When it came out in pa paperback, mm. it sold a little better than modestly well, but it was no runaway. The only thing is, it never stopped selling. It's in its 28th, I think, U.S. printing. There have been 13 British printings. There's been, I think, the first five books have been done in Swedish. 13 other countries have done it. I've seen numbers like th that you've sold over 3 million copies of this year. Is that correct? It's around 3 million for the Recluse series. It might be a little more. I don't have very good numbers yeah. on, on the foreign sales. I think, well, you come over a certain point too. So it's like if you're talking in the millions, 
you're also, you know, one or two Swedish books probably won't matter. But so when you're writing this, like if you look at it, so does the story ever take its own way? Does it ever get an energy on its own and bring you along with it? Not in that sense. I generally have a plot arc in mind. And there are often times when I get to a particular point in that arc when I, when I will say to myself, I thought this character would do this. This character mm. could not do this in this circumstance. It just doesn't fit him. And then I've got to figure out, okay, can I even do this? And if so, how can I come up with another way to get him to this particular place? That's probably the most in terms of the surprises. So, like the the characters have their own things that they can do or not do. They have a, they become a a person that you have to, then treat that the same person throughout the throughout the series. Yeah, um, a part of also part of that is that if you look closely at the Recluse books, uh, the last trilogy is the only one where I have done more than two books about a given character, and sometimes only one. Yeah. Um, Yes. The, con- the continuity in the Recluse books is really the world uh, and the cultures. I mean, I, one of the things I can say about the Recluse books, which I don't think is true of any other series that I know of, I'm not saying it's not true because you can't read everything, but it's certainly one of the very few that has the fictional history of a r- world across 2,300 years, and it's not a static world. You see two empires rise and fall. You see other countries change. You see revolutions. Uh, You see invasions. Uh, The world of Recluse is is anything but a static uh, landscape. It's a real world in the sense that things change. Sometimes people can make a change. Sometimes they can't. So in, like, even one of the things I like is that it actually, it's not a chronological universe. So you move forth and back in time, which for me, who don't really like linear things, it it actually, because I'd like to know what happens to what happened before now when I know what happened now. Like, it's an opposite way of of telling a story from start to beginning. You're kind of telling it there and then back and then, you know, forward. So That's because of my mindset. The question, the thing I mentioned earlier, which is, I'm always wondering how things came to be. So, I usually, frankly, in most of my series, start at the end and then work backwards. It just, that happens to work for me. It does drive some of my readers nuts, and I actually have a chronology of the Recluse books, which I am happy to email to anybody who wants to know the chronological order and the timeline. I didn't write it in that order, but... If you want to know it, email me. I'll give you the chronology. And you can actually even find it on on, uh, Wikipedia now, I think. I found something there. I was like, oh, 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 I didn't know this because I didn't look for it like that when I was looking at it. But I wanted to ask also, so so here you have, you say that a lot of it comes from you read, you're interested in history, you're interested in, in politics. Where did the inspiration of Chaos and Order come from in the Magic of Recluse books? From physics. I know that sounds odd, but that's where it came from. And basically, I was thinking about magic and folklore. And cold iron in uh, folklore generally stops magic. And folklore is often rooted in sort of semi-truths. And I started thinking about why would iron stop chaos magic? And then I thought, and this is sort of weird, but this is the way I work. I started thinking about things, and I realized that in the solar cycle, that is to say in the development of a star, 
The first stars were all hydrogen, nothing else. And basically, they fused that hydrogen to helium. Helium gets fused into, I don't know, it's beryllium, I think. Anyway, it keeps going on up the chain. All of those reactions are what we would call exothermic. That is to say, when that's created, energy is released. Until you get to a star that's fairly well along, and it's got to be fairly big as well, and it starts making iron in the core. Hmm. Iron is an endothermic reaction, and it sucks energy from the layers above the star. I mean, the outer layers of the star. And there's a gap between the core and the outer, outer layers. And that's what causes one type of nova. When the gap comes too great, the outer, outer mantle and corona crash in on a comparatively cooler center. And I thought, okay, what that really means is that iron is an energy sink of all sorts, and that includes magic. All right, what's the opposite of all of that chaotic energy? Structured matter. That's basically the analog I went with. And then you trans... So, because it's interesting, um, one of the things that is slightly different for me in this book is that it's not good and bad. Like, even with the white wizards who use chaos and the black wizards who use order, I got that right, right? And the gray one, that yep. are both. It's not like one is evil and one is good. They're all... They are basically physics. It's so interesting that you said, because they're more, this is what they do. Then they have a choice what they do with it. Would that be correct? Like that they... That's true, except there is one catch to it. And I think this, the, the books in the Reckless Saga show this. It is much easier to become corrupt if you're working with chaos. The problem at the extreme with order is you're likely to become too rigid and bureaucratic. Uh, they each have their downsides. Yeah. But the down the downside of chaos is corruption. The downside of order is extra unnecessary structure and bureaucracy. But then I have to ask, if you take that, could you see any correlation with what goes on in the world today? Like, can you can you bring the fact? Like, is there parts of this world that comes into the story? I know you came out with a book right now in June even in the series. So is there any part of our current world like that comes into the books? Um, not, not of our current world, but in the sense, you could say that one of the big problems that the developing countries have literally is corruption. And corruption undermi yeah. undermines order. You basically take a look at, at countries that have corrupt infrastructures and they've got all sorts of problems. Our problem is pretty much on the other side, we, at least in the United States. We tend to have a lot more bureaucracy than we need, and it often gets way too rigid. So in that sense, yeah, there's, there is a parallel. So w when you write the books, do you, because I know you've said that the main aim is to entertain the readers. So is that, is that the main aim, or is there also an aim where they would get something from the books that, I don't know, gets them more aware of things around them? Actually, you've, you've actually nailed me on that one. My goal in writing is to, make, to enter, is to make people think. But if I can't entertain them, they won't stay around long enough to think. Brilliant. Yes, that is very correct. <laughs> yeah. So you use entertainment to tell a story that could possibly make them think. That at least is the idea. If you were one of these 
wizards? Would you be a black or a white or a gray, you think? I probably would be a gray. Politically and practically and everything else, I consider myself what you might say, in pretty much everything, a flaming moderate. I feel very strongly about it. Um, I think some of the greatest evils in human history come from extremism on either side. And I don't see why people don't see it. So if I were a wizard, I'd be a gray. You would be gray. Is that what you call balance? The yeah. moderate. The, That's exactly yeah. why the balance is so important in recluse. Unlike our world, recluse has a built-in stabilizing mechanism. I'm not sure our world does. It probably does, but that balance in our world does not necessarily include the survival of the human race. The planet will survive. If we screw it up too bad, we may not. Yes, I agree about that. That is very true. So, so this is part of what you show through using the the chaos and order and the gray and the white and the black wizards that you show the importance of balance and how it is, like you say, there's a system for that. In your latest book, which I think is a science fiction, I think it's, is that a new series that is starting, The Quantum Shadows, or is that a... Quantum Shadows won't actually be out until about a year from now. It'll be, I think it, it's a oh. June 2020 release, unless they've moved it up on me. Um, the next book, Endgames, just came out today, uh, which is the last book in the Imager portfolio. And then the next book in the Recluse series, which is the third book about Belter, will be out in August. Now, getting back to Quantum Shadows, that's a standalone. It's a far future science fantasy. You would say, I can say it's a far future theological science fantasy. And the original title of the book was Quantum Shadows of Heaven. The marketing people said that was too long, so they shortened it to Quantum Shadows. But the full title originally was Quantum Shadows of Heaven or 45 Ways of Looking at a Raven. Wow. I like both. So it's a fantasy science. It's a science fantasy novel. So it's a fantasy, yep. but it takes place in the future. Very far future. What does very far future mean to you? Millions of years. So does it take place on Earth or somewhere else? I mean, I, it's a bit of a spoiler, but it won't change anything. Humanity's already screwed up Earth so bad that not much lives on it. So they moved somewhere else. Possibly. You don't have don't, no spoilers on that one. Yes. <laughs> I, would, I, I will it. say it, it. It's fair to say humanity lives, lives somewhere else in over time, many some places else. Yeah. But that's as far as I'll go. So I read somewhere that you had said that um, fantasy sold less than science fiction. Is that still true? Was that true no, I a think, few years ago? No, I think you may have gotten that backwards because I have said that my fantasy sells much better than my science fiction. Oh, I may have. Yeah, because that makes more sense to me because I would say fantasy sells way more than science fiction, at least today. So, hmm. So when you're mixing them, is that a way of also being able to use all your tools? Whatever occurs? Well, that was part of the idea. I just thought, I've never done this before. And one of the things I try to do in either small or large ways is to do something new or different with each book. Sometimes it's little things. Sometimes it's bigger things. This one's quite a bit bigger. Um, it's not a hugely long book. It's only about 93,000 words. But it's very different from anything that I've written before. 
So would you say you ever, do you ever get tired of writing? I know making something different does that again, you know, inspires us to, to find it fun again. But when you write so much, how do you keep that energy going continuously? Well, one of the ways is I try to alternate genres. And when I'm not alternate genres, I try to alternate series. But I've discovered that when I finish a book, yeah, I don't want to write for maybe three days. And then all of a sudden my brain starts saying, what are you going to do now? Somebody once asked me, why do writers write? And I sort of feel like really driven writers, and I think it's fair to say I'm a driven writer, write because they have to. So do the books actually, they're kind of writing themselves in your head then, because it's knocking on you and saying, hey, <laughs> you know, here's a new thing that you could write. No, actually, it doesn't work that way for me. I have to hammer out each book. Uh, yes, I have an overarching plot line, but I have to hammer out all the pieces. It's much more like forging something than just hmm. taking, tran taking transcription from the subconscious. And that's why I suppose I get a great deal of satisfaction when it's finished, because using that metaphor, I have forged something unique. Yeah, and you so you forge it while you're writing it. Interestingly enough, Tom Doherty, who's my publisher, after the first couple of Reckless books were out, made the observation about my fantasy. He said, you write fantasy with rivets. So in, in that, like you take that three-day break and then you continue to forge your, your books like that you go on. And, and I like that, that writers have to write. So would, would you ever see a day when you stopped or will you just continue to write? Oh, there could be a day when I stop writing if I don't think I'm doing what I should. If I can't write to the standard that I think I should, should be writing. And that scares the hell out of me. Because I, 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 I wonder if, will I be bright enough to realize that I'm not writing to the standard that I've set for myself? And I've had two very good editors, and I think they'll tell me if I'm deluding myself. Well, the first one was David Hartwell, and he unfortunately died three years ago. But David was pretty honest about things. And I've been with Jen, because she was his assistant for two years before he died. So I've been with Jen of, over five years, and she tells it like it is. And that's what I need. Basically, my, my arrangement with my editor has always been very simple. Don't tell me what to do. Just tell me where I screwed up. Let me fix it. <laughs> Yes. Now that, and also having somebody who's actually willing to tell what is, it's very helpful when writing. Now, if we have some of the listeners on here that has never read anything by you, where would you suggest they start? What would be your, your <laughs> suggestion from all your 76 books? That's, I, I've written such a diversity of things. I mean, if we're talking fantasy, I'd suggest probably the imager books. They're a little more accessible. The first three books are set with imaging magic in a country that's similar to 1850s France, and they tend to draw people in a lot. The Magic of Reckless is a good place to start, but frankly, it was my first fantasy, and 
it's not as good as some of the later ones. In terms of the science fiction, that really just, that's almost a personal taste. There's not really probably one that stands out. I mean, I have personal favorites, but they're not necessarily what would appeal to people. I mean. It's a tricky question. I, yeah, I realize that when you have so many books, if you had five, it would be easier, but you don't. The image of your portfolio, the one you're recommending, that's one of your latest series, correct? Yeah, that was it's the one. That is the latest fantasy series. I didn't write the first one on that until 2009. And the book that came out today will be the last. Unlike Recluse, which is the fictional history of a world, which is sort of open-ended in the sense that since I only do a couple of books, three in one case, about a given character, as long as it fits into the development of the world, I can always put something in there that still is new and different. But the imager portfolio is literally a cycle. Now, admittedly, I started the cycle at the end, but the last book closes that cycle. And I thought about it, my editor thought about it, and we basically said, if I wrote another book in this, I could really screw it up. And I, and I didn't want to do that. Well, I haven't read that series, so I'm going to go on now, and I'm guessing it's on iTunes, right? So you can buy it as an ebook. Yep. Are your books? Yeah. So where else could they find it? We can put your, um, we'll put your website URL into the, into the description. But how else? What's the easiest way for them to find your book? Just go on, on iBooks you can do it. and look there. You can, you can find all of my books are available as eBooks. So you can get them for Barnes & Noble, Amazon, iTunes, whoever does Kobo sites. Um, they're all available there. Print books, bookstores. Um, I'm not as familiar with the European bookstores. I do know there are a couple of uh, bookstores in Holland that carry my stuff <laughs> because I actually visited them and was surprised to find that out. Well, I hopefully... Hopefully there are some, I'm sure there are some all over Europe, but it's the easiest way then for people if they want to, when it's start reading you, I think probably it's an ebook at this point and yeah. then they can carry you with them and just read whenever, you know, they have time. And not all of them. Right now there are about 45 of my books, which are also available in audible versions. So if you're into listening, all of the recluse books are on audible, all of the imager books are on audible. All of the Corin Chronicles are on Audible, and even all of the uh, Spell Song Cycle, which is the shortest fantasy series, that's that's song magic, are on Audible. So, yeah, I really recommend that. I read the whole magic, well, the ones I read in Magical Clue series. I've listened to Walking in the Forest. It's an amazing way to get a book when you're listening to it when you're walking. So, thank you for putting them on audio. I think that's as far as we get today, because we're running out of time. Um, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me and for being willing to share this. And I am, I'm really excited to read a new series. So that will be my next thing to do after this. Well, I really appreciate having the opportunity to talk to you. Uh, I think this is probably the first podcast I've done for anybody outside of North America. So that, that's cool, too. You, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And um, hopefully we'll reach some more people with, with the different series this way, because it, it, does, it does make you think. You are you're achieving your target on that one. Thank you so much. You're welcome. 